I once saw a study indicating that giving people a placebo has modest health benefits, even if you tell them it's a placebo. Yes, I have also seen this. It is very curious. Happy Friday. Happy Weeds End. Uh, Welcome to the Weeds. I'm Dara Lind. I'm here with Matt Iglesias and congressional reporter for Vox.com, Tara Golshan, who uh, knows more after having been on the Hill reporting for a year about the culture and conflicts there than either of us, which is great because today we're going to be discussing uh, Congress's harassment problem and really Congress's ethics problem generally. It You might think that Congress has dodged a bullet because Roy Moore, who was almost certainly going to be under pressure to be investigated by the Ethics Committee if he got elected for having allegedly sexually assaulted a 14-year-old girl back in the 70s and also dated several other teenagers, uh, was not elected on Tuesday night uh, in a stunning loss to Democrat Doug Jones. However, if anyone on the Hill thinks that they are taking a breather and that they have dodged what was going to be a very embarrassing episode, they probably shouldn't be too relaxed. Uh, We in D.C. and now a lot of people who are familiar with political social media are hearing rumors that a lot of publications around here have many reporters trying to dig up and put together big pieces on sexual harassment and assault on the Hill. You know, the number we've seen numbers thrown around that the Washington Post is going to be running an article that names 30 to 40 members of Congress, you know, who have had some sort of misconduct alleged against them. So it looks like a big reckoning could be coming. And we wanted to talk about what that would look like systematically, because so far, when you have one case, one person in Congress being named at a time, it's much easier to pressure individuals to resign. But if a big 30 to 40 person allegation happens, you're going to see a much bigger push to resort to the system. So what does that system actually look like? And Tara, um, I was just expressing deep confusion before we started taping this because I have only recently realized that there are four different entities to which someone could report sexual harassment by a member of Congress. And I was hoping you could kind of walk us through, like, what is the current accountability system so that we can understand maybe why it might not work as well as it should? It is not unusual to be confused by the ethics process in Congress. It's a really kind of convoluted system. And even the people who work in on the Hill and around the Capitol are confused on how to kind of address uh, issues when they come up. Um, so right now there are four s- separate entities. There's the U.S. Congress Office of Compliance, which was established in 1995 uh, through the Congressional Accountability Act. And that kind of covers... Uh, lawmakers and staff and any Capitol Hill employees through the EEOC labor laws. Um, And so anyone can kind of go and lodge a complaint and they can go through a mediation process. They can go through counseling, any matter of— It's like a sort of like an HR— for yeah, Congress. Exactly. Because each each individual office is kind of like its own company— People like to say that so they can have their own HR office, but they often don't have their own HR office. So this is kind of this like overarching HR office. Um, and that was notably instated when um, Bob Packwood, senator from Oregon, resigned because of sexual assault allegations against him that were ultimately found credible in the ethics committee. So I'll go there next, which is 
the House and Senate both have their individual ethics committees, which are um, bipartisan committees with senators and, and lawmakers that sit on them. And then and it's a little bit harder to get uh, an allegation to an ethics committee because it it often has to come from a lawmaker or it has to be referred to by our fourth uh, entity here, which is the Office of Congressional Ethics, which anyone can report to, and then it decides whether or not to refer them to the ethics committees. And those and those ethics entities sort of historically mainly focus on financial issues, right? Yeah, they were largely established to address issues of fraud and corruption and embezzlement. And, and they're known for being really good at addressing those issues, and they kind of address everything else as it comes. So if you ask senators now, well, are they equipped to address sexual assault allegations? They'll say, well, we've done it in the past. But it's it's just, it's this culture of we have to take everything as it comes. But it's not, it's not the what the institution was originally there for. So just to make sure I have this correct, after Packwood's resignation in 1995, Congress said, while the Ethics Committee has successfully compelled a resignation, let's create this other office that doesn't have a direct relationship with the Ethics Committee? After Packwood's resignation, there was like a, a big feeling that there was not enough to kind of address sexual assault allegations on the Hill. So they passed the Congressional Accountability Act, which basically offered protections for staffers uh, to file complaints to these but issues. It didn't, but like create any kind of pipeline to any any like body that would have power over the member who was accused. I I I I'm not completely certain on this, but I I think you can ultimately go into mediation and um and settlement with uh okay. members. Right. Um, so the the nice, low key, less embarrassing for everyone involved kind of yeah. thing. I mean, there's not a lot of, as we've learned recently, there's not a lot of transparency in any of on, on any of this. And I think Congress uh, Congress people are starting to be more vocal about having to create more policies around around these issues. So let's sort of go through some of the cases that we've had recently, right? And so one thing we've had is the the Senate Ethics Committee has been invoked in a hypothetical sense, right? There was talk of Roy Moore being forwarded there, but he didn't win the election. Uh, there was talk when allegations about Al Franken originally came up. There was, it was going to be referred to the Senate Ethics Committee, but then uh, women in the Senate Democratic Caucus sort of shoved him out the door before that could ever happen. Though it, we should note that he has not yet set a date for his resignation. So, right. But one one difference there is that both Franken and Moore, they were not accused of harassing congressional staffers. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, there's a, there's a difference between a generic, I don't want to say generic, but a, a political complaint, right? Like Al Franken seems like a bad man who has done bad things and a human resources complaint, which is like staff members are being mistreated, right? And you would, I mean, you would want any organization should have some kind of human resources system, you know, some way of dealing with staffers' concerns about how the organization is run. But then you also always have the idea that there could be, particularly in politics, right? I mean, it's a, there's like a holistic judgment, like, should this guy be a United States senator? And, uh, 
it, it's, I mean, it's noteworthy that the stuff Franken was alleged to have done sort of involved random third parties. Uh, but but that's at least one reason that you might want to have separate kinds of institutions, whereas we've had a number of, of allegations against House members that involved their actual staff. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that there is kind of when Tara, you know, when you say that the people you've talked to on the Hill are worried that the Ethics Committee is not equipped I think that this is definitely part of that conversation is where are they normatively drawing the line? But, you know, it's not exactly as if the Ethics Committee has been super great on handling human resources-style complaints either, right? Like, Blake Farenthold of Texas finally, you know, announced this week that he was not running for re-election due to allegations of sexual misconduct that had mostly already come out that the Ethics Committee had, like, had some kind of investigation into and had decided that, you know, they weren't worth pursuing. So it's not entirely clear to me that the line here in practice is the line between what they're doing on the clock as members of Congress and what they're doing in their personal lives. Right? Wait, well, what happened with Farron? Yeah. Can you walk us through that? He had, there were allegations a while ago, and then he had this massive settlement that came out. Um, and, and, and there was, there were, news reports recently un- unveiling that or surfacing that there is this, this big settlement. Um, and there have been more allegations against him since. Right. So this was a case where a complaint had been brought against him. There was a financial settlement. And then it was kind of so. And that's also the John Conyers case, right, had that sort of structure, right, that complaint was filed and was sort of hushed up or resolved monetarily, but not brought forward to the public to be addressed in a in a political context. Because that's also one of the distinctions here, right? It's like, do you want a system that provides financial redress to victims? Or do you want a system that provides political accountability for perpetrators? And I think that the question of confidentiality, you know, cuts in somewhat opposite directions for, for those kinds of things, right? I mean, from the same point of an individual victim who feels that her career has been hurt or, you know, you, you want to file a complaint, you want to get, you want to get some, some money, being able to do it confidentially is probably advantageous to you in that case. Uh, but politically, like secret settlements – I mean, it doesn't accomplish anything. Yeah, I mean, I think that we've seen a real shift. This is one of the things that's probably going to become clearer with time about, you know, the current kind of recent intolerance of open secrets and sexual misconduct, right? Like, up until recently, sexually harassing or assaulting someone was seen as a discreet harm against that person. So, you know, if financial restitution was the best way to kind of fix that harm, you did that. Now that so many of the cases that have come out, both in politics and outside of politics, have been cases of patterns, right, where a perpetrator is harassing multiple people in very similar ways, I think there's been a kind of public awareness that just addressing a a particular victim, especially if you're doing it to, you know, protect the in such a way that both the perpetrator and the victim are unnamed is leaving future victims vulnerable because they don't know anything about this being a behavior that someone's engaged in in the past. So that kind of brings it a little closer to the classic ethics committee framework of like, yeah, you're investigating a specific thing that has happened in the past, but you're investigating it because it says something about the character of this person who's been elected to represent you. Okay, we should we should take a break here, uh, but then then come back to this. 
It's the holiday season, which is great. Uh, it's, it's a very happy time of year, but it is also a time of year that gets really hectic. It gets really busy. You're trying to wrap your work up while also take your time off. Uh, you got to shop for presents. You got to get in touch with people. You got to attend holiday parties. With stamps.com, you know, anytime you need to get postage and you need to send something out, you just go to your computer, you print out what you need, you slap it on there. It's super easy. It's super convenient. You can do it at night. You can do it on Sunday. You don't need to worry about, about the schedules and things like that. It's incredible simplification for gifts, holiday cards, or any other kind of like large-scale mailing projects. Um, so Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. You buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer, your own printer. Then the mailman picks it up. Stamps.com makes it easy. They'll send you a digital scale that automatically calculates the exact postage, and they'll even help you decide the best class of mail to send every time. So you print postage any day, any time. Stamps.com is always open. Uh, you know, so I use it because it's just, it's incredibly convenient. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale with no long-term commitment. Go to Stamps.com, click on the little microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in weeds. That's Stamps.com. Enter weeds. So, Tara, it seems, you know, you are actually the one who's talking to, who's been talking to people on the Hill about this kind of both in, you know, on the record and as the Congress back channel gossip happens. And what are the senses you get of the real issues that people see with the current structure? And does anyone feel that there's any hope of making it better or do they just kind of feel that this is not something that they are as Congress equipped to handle? I think, that, I mean, there's definitely conversations and there's legislation out there right now for ways to make this whole process more transparent. Uh, and and I think, I think there are, there is a, there is an impetus right now to address this. Um, and we even saw that when both the House and Senate mandated sexual harassment training for all staff and lawmakers, there was a fun tidbit I, I learned about that was that they didn't actually mandate it have to come from a specific place. So it could kind of come from from anywhere, really. They just have to, their staff has to go through sexual harassment training, but they don't they don't specify where it has to come from. And it's worth saying, I mean, the, the evidence on sexual harassment training is really bad, right? I mean, this is, this is a, sort of classic public policy thing where court rulings in the past had indicated that a company could sort of immunize itself from corporate-level responsibility, financial responsibility for harassment claims if they could say they had, like, taken people through sexual harassment training. So a whole industry of sexual harassment training sort of grew up for, like, legal protection purposes. But because it doesn't need to succeed in preventing your managers from harassing people in order to be financially beneficial to the company to provide the training, the like efficacy of the training programs is really, really low. And then it looks like when, when Congress sort of took a move in this direction, instead of being like, this doesn't have a great track record in corporate America, how can we make it like better and more rigorous? It, it was like the opposite. They right, made it, like, right. as hand-wavy as possible. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the moral of the story here is that the problem isn't that people are engaging in behavior that they don't know whether or not it's harassment. Like, if that were the case, sexual harassment training would lead them to know where the lines are and be, you know, solicitous that they don't step over them. What you have is a situation where people know that things are wrong and assume that they are powerful enough to get away with them, which 
training that identifies what sexual harassment looks like doesn't necessarily help with that. Right. I, I'm not saying sexual harassment training is the end. I'll be all. I'm just saying that, I mean, no, having no, it is better only, than not having it. The fact and, that it's the only thing that they've done, like the one thing that we know definitely doesn't work is probably illustrative in itself. Right. Um, but I mean, I, there have been a lot of questions raised, especially around, I think it was, they were raised because of Roy Moore, about whether or not the Senate is kind of is equipped or even in the position to kind of address these kinds of allegations for people who have not even arrived at the Senate yet or allegations that predate their election or, um, yeah, predate their time in the Senate. And, and there is a kind of, this is a political conversation that we're having right now, but it's also a constitutional question of, of what jurisdictions do these committees have. And, and that was something that was really interesting with a couple of conversations when I was, with uh, people who've formerly been in the Senate and have observed how these institutions work, was that the Senate isn't necessarily a very reactive body. And uh, it's now being kind of tasked with these political questions where the jurisdiction of these committees are vague and, um, for example, in the Senate Ethics Committee, the Constitution gives it the power to address these questions if there's disorderly behavior, if it reflects upon the Senate and breaks rules of reg and regulations as to the Senate code of conduct, how you want to set that power establishes a lot of new precedents. And they're going to be they're going to have to be lines drawn, I think, once they decide how far they want to go. I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that the Senate code of conduct doesn't have like a bullet point that says don't grope anybody. I um I I think it's something about like appropriate behavior or or behavior becoming of of right. a body. I, I I don't know I mean, the specific. Know, I haven't memorized the Senate Code of Conduct. What? <laughs> what did we hire you for? I know. I'm sorry. But I mean, it does seem like a serious question, right? I mean, you would say you would look at the Roy Moore situation, right? And one thing you would say about it is like it's not a coincidence that he lost the election, right? Like this was obviously was a major issue in the campaign. And had he won the election, despite a like full airing of this in the electoral campaign, for the Senate to turn around and say, well, you know what, we think voters in Alabama are like kind of nutty, like they really made a bad call with this one, we're going to get rid of him, would seem, I mean, there's like an obvious problem with that. Then layered into it, there's a non-problematic element, which is that Alabama has a Republican governor, so had more won, and then had he been somehow kicked out through an ethics process, he would have been replaced by another Republican, probably another Republican who Republican leaders were happier with than more and more independently. So maybe it would be fine. But you and could they were kind of explicitly pushing that for a bit. You know, right. at one point they were all but saying, this is not going to be a problem because we'll fix your Roy Moore issue. Just vote you know, vote for the Republican and we'll make sure it's a Republican who isn't embarrassing to you. But you, but you could imagine a situation in which there's a move to unseat a senator with an opposite party governor, even though the senator won an election in which his opponents, like, aired these scandal charges against him, right? I mean, it's... There's a really... There's a really dicey terrain, you know, where like it's easy to look at a particular case where like the person is egregious and the partisan stakes 
are non-existent and be like, okay, I want to see some house cleaning here. But like, I mean, there's a the voters pick the senators. If the Senate picked the senators, that would like not be a representative democracy at all, right? That's that's like how the Chinese government works. And I don't I mean, you don't want to say like I don't want to exaggerate the slippery slope involved, but you can see why it would give people pause. And I think that this also intersects with a dynamic that we've seen uh, over the last couple of months as public figures who have already had allegations of sexual misconduct against them, like Woody Allen, uh, don't appear to be coming up against the same reckoning that people whose misconduct has been exposed recently have, right? That there's there's an assumption that it's kind of baked into the cake, even though it's pretty obvious that norms against this are shifting very rapidly. So that has, you know, all sorts of consequences when you're talking about a case in which literally people would have known about this or could have known about this when, say, the last time Blake Farenthold got reelected in 2016, people already, you know, knew something. They could have known something about the allegations against him, even if they didn't know all the details of the settlement. So there is a, a question that is both a political and moral one about, you know, obviously the Senate has decided that the people's will is not totally undeniable, you know, undeniable, that they can they can draw lines saying this reflects poorly on the body, this reflects poorly on the United States. And it's really a question of what are the behaviors that they consider morally beyond the pale? Like, corruption does appear to be something where even if people vote for somebody over and over again, the Senate does appear to be, see it as a problem. They have kicked, a, you know, they kicked a bunch of people out during the Reconstruction for being, you know, unreconstructed Confederates. So it's, I, I, I think that, it's one of those where the Senate already has decided that it's a balancing test. And the question is just where it gets balanced. Right. And I think they're also weighing the political factor right now, which I think we saw with the Franken case of they just they called for his resignation before an investigation began. So if we are indeed going to get these tens and dozens of, of new allegations, I think there is a growing call of, of a dupe fair and due process in these ethics committees. So it's, I mean, it's a reckoning that is coming um, and, and how they're going to deal with it is has to be addressed because eventually some of these people are going to have to be investigated probably for allegations that do predate their, their time in the Senate. Take another break here and, and consider some of that. You guys must know about Lyft. Uh, you know, this is this is the ride-sharing company. Uh, you use the app. Guy comes, picks you up, takes you where you need to go. And they're the company that knows their drivers are what keeps them moving. They know that they're valuable to them. So they do everything they can to make sure drivers are happy on every trip. Simple formula. Happy drivers mean happy passengers. Maybe that's why 9 out of 10 Lyft rides get a perfect 5-star rating. And as a Lyft driver, you can earn hundreds of dollars a week plus tips. Uh, Lyft was the first ride-sharing platform with tipping built right into the app. And that way, you know, getting, getting your tip doesn't depend on exactly like how many do they have a couple dollars in their bill or something like that. It's in the app. You keep 100% of the tips and the tips add up fast. Drivers have been paid over $200 million since the feature was first introduced. And with Express Pay, you actually get paid almost instantly instead of waiting around for weeks for the money you've already earned to come to you. Lyft has even taken the guesswork out of pickups. The new AMP device uses color coding to help passengers find their drivers. So join the ride-sharing company that believes in treating its people better. Go to lyft.com slash weeds today and you can get a $500 new driver bonus. That's lyft.com slash weeds, lyft.com slash weeds. It's a limited time only and terms do apply. 
Okay, well, one issue here that I think we were walking up close to is that you have, in any of these kinds of cases, right, you have a question of judgment, which is stipulating that we know what the facts are, what is the appropriate remedy, right? And what is the appropriate remedy can be somewhat unique in a partisan political context versus what you would have in a corporate culture context. You might take the view, this seems bad to me, but it's up to the voters to decide. Or you might have the view, this is so outrageous, we need to get rid of the person. But you also simply have factual disputes, right? I mean, you can say, no, this didn't happen, right? And part of the essence of the Bob Packwood case that made it a sort of canonical ethics committee precedent, but that I think is actually a little bit idiosyncratic and why it doesn't work is that Packwood heavily disputed the factual charges. He didn't indicate that what he was alleged to have done wasn't bad. He said that it hadn't happened. But then the committee investigation was able to produce pretty persuasive evidence that it actually had happened. A diary. Right. In the form of a, of a diary. And my knowledge of sexual harassment cases is not perfect, but I feel like that's pretty rare. It's pretty rare to get a case where the perpetrator is like, if it were true that I had done that, that would be really terrible. But I categorically deny that I did that. And then conclusive evidence emerges that was like, yes, you really did do that. What we much more often get is some mix of where it looked like the Al Franken situation was headed, where he was saying that, like, maybe something similar to some of those incidents had happened, but not all of them did, that some of the characterizations of them weren't true. And then from his defenders saying that, like, some of this stuff that he's alleged to have done, while not, like, great, is just not that egregious. And that's very different, right, to say, okay, we're going to get into a murky situation where the question isn't, like, can we uncover a secret diary? But the question is, can we ascertain exactly what happened in a room that only two people were in? And can we make a judgment about, like, what level of egregiousness are we going after? And the Ethics Committee, I mean, it's it's not like a giant police organization. You know, it's hard to know with a lot of these claims, like, how would you ever prove that it's true if the if the member wants to resist political pressure? Right. I mean, and say, like, no, like that didn't happen. I didn't do that. Like, what are you what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about this because it's not like nobody expects the United States Congress to be doing some level of bringing facts to light. Like, that's kind of the purpose of trusting the Congress with oversight of the federal government, right? That, like, they're supposed to be keeping the executive branch accountable for what it's actually doing. That said, I am by no means the first person to note that the extent to which Congress takes that oversight as, like, keeping tabs on the working of the federal government is not a super strong extent right now that, like, oversight as a kind of committee thing has become opportunities to question, you know, high-profile people about whatever under the sun, that, you know, the kind of 
investigations like the Benghazi investigation have been kind of opportunities to take high-profile things and embarrass the current administration when the other party is in power. Um, I'm sure we'll see something similar if Democrats manage to retake either chamber in 2018 against the Trump administration. But if these are muscles that Congress is not usually exercising, if they're not really in the business on a day-to-day basis of figuring out what is the truth in this case, it seems extremely difficult for them to then turn those depleted skills on themselves. Yeah, I mean, and as as Matt said, I mean, they're they're in these cases, they're being asked to kind of find a truth in something that is just extraordinarily gray. Yeah, and uh, I mean, so there's the the allegations of Maria's against uh, Ruben Kihuan. I actually have no idea how to say his last name. Um, a, a Democratic House member from Nevada. And uh, Nancy Pelosi has been saying he should resign. He's been fighting. And the most recent story I read, it was a Nevada Independent story, and it was about a lobbyist who said that he had been harassing her uh, when he was in the state legislature. And the charges were quite serious, but also as a as a reader, it like it would have been much more conclusive if she had been willing to go on the record and like name herself and come forward, because had that been the case, she could have handed over text messages that she said she saw and that would have constituted like really sort of solid forensic evidence. But she didn't want to do that. And I I feel like she had pretty good reasons for not wanting to do that. Like, I'm not saying this woman is a liar. I completely understand why a professional lobbyist in the Nevada state legislature doesn't want to come on the record with assault allegations against a prominent politician there. But it creates a tough situation where I can say as a human being that, like, I think these allegations against him are probably true. But then there's a legal standard, right? I mean, if you've ever been on a jury or something, you know, they they impress upon you that you're not supposed to sit there, listen to what people have to say, and then just kind of like take your best guess. And the politics of it is a, like, it's a, it's it's a weird middle ground. Now, as a voter, obviously, you don't need to hold people to any kind of like proof beyond a reasonable doubt standard. But to talk about kicking a duly elected member of Congress out of office in an ethics process, it seems like you do want a pretty high evidentiary bar. And I really see why what Nancy Pelosi wants is for him to just step down voluntarily, because that that obviously fixes the problem. But when people really want to fight, it's like it's not obvious to me what you're going to what you're going to do, because it's it's not really in victims interest to come forward, like in the clearest possible way. Yeah, I, uh, I, for listeners, I have just taken off my cardigan because I'm beginning to get angry about things. Um, the thing is that QN man- maintains, as do really a lot of the people against whom allegations have come out recently, that most of what he's alleged of doing happened, but it was in the context of a consensual relationship. And that's like, that appears to now be the go-to, you know, Ryan Lisa of The New Yorker, who was summarily fired earlier this week, made a similar defense that, like, whatever he was accused of, it happened consensually. Um, it appears to kind of be the the go-to among, you know, at least this wave. And it, it seems to be happening at the same time as there, there is kind of something of a backlash in the 
chattering class assessment of what's going on culturally, that like maybe there's a spectrum of behavior. Maybe we shouldn't be punishing people for one thing as bad as we publish punish other people for like groping. And this is a familiar paradigm. It's what we lived with until three months ago, right? That there is consensual behavior that's totally okay and then non-consensual behavior. And like, as long as what happened to you was something you consented to, like, that's totally kosher. And if that the, there's a big problem and a concern where someone will take consensual sexual behavior and try to hold it against someone later as non-consensual, that like, this is a real concern that we need to be designing processes to prevent and why do processes so important and all of that. I am not denying that any of that is true. What I think needs to be said is that the reason that we're having this conversation is because an, a massive New York Times story came out about decades of misconduct by Harvey Weinstein that did not center on him doing things to women that they said no to, but on him using his power and his influence to coerce women into situations where they felt they could not say no. And that's, when we're talking about the misconduct of powerful men, that's an incredibly important consideration, especially in Congress when there it's a very small world and there really are fears of retaliation. That the idea that we're somehow snapping back to this world in which if you say it was consensual, that means you didn't do anything wrong because you, there's no world in which someone would have consented without really wanting to. That there's no way you can misuse your power by getting someone into a position where they feel they have to consent. And that there's, you know, a big concern that people are going to manipulate someone after sexual contact with them to make them look bad. I I understand that these concerns are real, but I also think that we're losing the bigger picture, which is not really about consent. It's about power and its misuse. I second that. <laughs> but, like, I do kind of want you to talk. I mean, I I only know about the kind of concerns about retaliation from reading your stuff. So I was hoping you could kind of get give us a flavor of, like, what does it feel like for young women in particular on the Hill, like, feeling that they have to negotiate all of this? I think that... The, the lack of transparency or the lack of clarity or what structures are in place for them to report or to come forward. And the, the structure of the Hill is very much so, I mean, I've said, I've said this before, and like Congress is a breeding ground for this kind of behavior because you have extremely small offices. There's no immediate oversight. Um, there's a very strong power dynamic at play. You're, everybody knows Everyone can hear what's going on in every other office. There's a lot of mobility, or not mobility, there's a lot of kind of moving around of jobs. So uh, if something happens in your office and you make noise about it and then you get shut down and you want to leave because you feel unsafe, well, your boss, possibly the person that put you in that uncomfortable position, has the power to go tell other offices not to hire you. So, I mean, there's just a lot of conditions at play in Congress that make it a very unsafe environment um, that makes fear of retaliation really fair for these victims. And I think that is why they have been silent for so long. And I think I think important context for people listening also is that behavior on the part of senators and members of Congress toward their staff that fits under a much broader sort of horizon of abusive mm -hmm. is really, really common. And everybody 
knows that, you know, that certain members are like crazy screamers, you know, and force people to, you know, break them down into tears or or things like that. And it's the kind of workplace in which you are really, you are, they're members of Congress and then they have staff and the staff is like just there to support them. And if what they want you to do is answer constituents' mail, like that's what you do. And if what they want you to do is go get your dry cleaning, that's what they do. And if what they want you to do is get yelled at for half an hour about something that's not really your fault, like that's what you do. Like you're just, you're there to support them. And that is a situation that puts people at incredible levels of risk for different kinds of exploitation. There's not a, like, objective mission of the office other than just do what the member wants, right? And Right, like, and, like, nobody elects, nobody decides to vote for somebody because they're a good manager of people. Right. Right, I mean, exactly. They're not, you, you don't, you don't get promoted to be a committee chairman because you were considered to have like an aptitude for middle management. It's a question of seniority and ideology and and everything else like that. So, and I think you see in a lot of these cases, I mean, I I think a a lot of different sort of harassers who've been outed both on and off Congress turned out to have had sort of general reputations as being assholes that in some ways wound up protecting them would be like, well, he's just a jerk to everybody. And I often think that's a concept that needs to be rethought, but it's certainly common in in Congress, right? It's just like, it's not, it's a culture of not treating the people who work there very well is sort of endemic. And the way you, you get ahead is by putting up with it. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely, you know, this also comes up out in other weird ways. Like when John Conyers was, you know, there were allegations that he'd like been naked or mostly naked in front of staff, some of his former staff were like, yeah, he changes clothes in the office all the time because, like, he spends most of his time there. Like, most of us have seen him shirtless at some point, which is deeply weird to say about your boss, but is totally normal in this bizarre congressional space where, like, Congress members sleeping in their offices is somehow okay. Right. I guess this is time for the Matt take of you should pay them more. You should. <laughs> um, <laughs> so but they don't have to sleep in their offices. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it is. A, a lot of members of Congress sleep in their offices because it's expensive to have two houses in life. And I mean, a, lo- a lot of members of Congress are rich. Uh, which like good for them, but I think there's a big set of problems around Congress being all full of millionaires, um, and then there's like another set of problems around members of Congress sleeping in the office. I don't think I saw this come up recently in sort of Hill chatter in the harassment context, which I don't think that's credible. I mean, I I don't think men are like harassing their subordinates because they're sleeping in the office, but just like separately, it is odd to me. I feel like they should build some congressional housing and also not let people harass their subordinates. As a young woman, if my boss were an older man who like had a cot in the room where I worked or the room next to the room where I worked, like I would feel that lines were being blurred on a regular basis that in a way that would make it harder to figure out what was just like the member going about his business and the member being sexually suggestive. Fair enough. Okay, I, take a take a final break. And then I, I think we, we should talk about what, what Dara was saying before, this sort of all-encompassing question of like power. 
This holiday season, you can get a gift for yourself from one of our very smart sponsors, The Economist Magazine. Uh, they know that that I value their insights, and they are offering Weeds fans a free copy of the magazine. So it's it's really, what what can you get for yourself that's better than something that's for free? Uh, you know, I, I love to get down into the weeds, and I've loved The Economist for years. Uh, this is a magazine that gives you a chance to dig deeper into what's really going on in the world. It, it's not a partisan kind of publication. They give you straight-up facts on, on a big range of vital topics, uh, politics, technology, science the environment, economics, business. I think it's a great source for sort of world news, for things that don't center the United States necessarily. But you can find out about, you know, what's happening in, in Latin America and Africa, Asia, uh, all, all around the world. Uh, you know, we we cover what we cover here, but but we only get to so much of it. So you can do yourself a favor. Visit www.economist.com slash weeds to sample a free copy of The Economist right now. They got the lowdown on the forces that impact our lives, change our world. Uh, they don't waste a single word. They cut through the noise, help you stay entertained and well-informed. Bottom line, here's what you need to know. If you want to dig into The Economist today, visit www.economist.com slash weeds, or, you know, just be lazy, use the Google, search for Economist Weeds. Either way, you'll get to the right page. You can sample your free copy. Uh, they think you're going to love it. I think, you know, they think you're going to subscribe. Uh, so check them out, theeconomist.com slash weeds. One thing it seems to me that we see in some of these stories around Congress and some of them more broadly is there is a real reluctance on the part of sort of more small C conservative minded people, more older people, more male people, but whatever it is, to want to draw like big safety zone lines, it seems to me. In lots of areas of life, we just say like, you are not supposed to drive a car after you've been drinking. And, like, it's true. Like, most of the time, most people who get behind the wheel and they've had some drinks, they will probably pilot the car home without killing anybody. Um, I've been in such vehicles myself, and and it's been fine, but it's unsafe. It's, a, it's an unsafe form of behavior, and we prohibit it legally. Uh but what you have with these things is, like, there's no rule against members of Congress having affairs with lobbyists or state legislators having affairs with lobbyists, even though there's an obviously inherently problematic aspect to that, right? And, and this is is exactly what, what, what you were saying with um, Reb Kuhn's case, where it's like, how consensual, how meaningful is it to say that something was consensual or to some degree consensual when also this other person's job is like literally to like get you to vote certain ways on bills and you have that kind of power. Yeah, there was actually, I mean, uh, there was a story about the Arizona state legislature that came out this week where an unnamed former lobbyist literally said that when she was having dinner with a member of the legislature and like asking, okay, so are you going to vote yes on our bill or not? The legislator basically all but said only if you, you know, like, have some sort, you know, have sex with me. And then when she refused, he voted, he was, like, one of the deciding votes against the bill and blew her a kiss from the floor. Like, that is a deeply weird situation. Right. And and a question I have about something like that is, like, how much do you want to hang the wrongness of that misconduct on exactly how explicit the guy was in his statements, right? It, it seems to me that that's sort of not 
really the issue there, right? That it's like, well, was he like coyly suggestive? You know, because he used like I, I love the Sopranos and, and you know that like one one deal and experienced organized crime is that people are very careful to make sure that the literal text of what they said, if it was read out in a court of law, leaves them room for exoneration. But like actual adult human beings are capable of communicating to one another with not only words, but body language, tone of voice, to bring across what they are trying to say. And to parse it in that kind of way it's just there's an obvious reason why it's inappropriate for members of a legislature and lobbyists to be engaging in like swaps of sexual favors for legislation that I don't think hinges all that much on the particulars of any given case. Yeah, I mean, I think that it, the other allegation against Representative Kuhn is that, you know, a I think, an intern on one of his campaigns. So, like, there are definitely different power dynamics in play when you're talking about a lobbyist who's not someone, you know, who who you are literally paying or who is literally working for you and an intern. But in both cases, you know, legislators have a lot of power. And that power is not just expressed in votes. It's expressed in the kind of gossip channels that Tara was talking about, where you can tell your colleagues not to hire someone. There's a lot of formal and informal power there. And the kinds of people who will run for office are the kinds of people who are drawn to that power. You know, I think a lot of people who, a lot of people come to D.C. because they want it to be like the West Wing. A lot of people come to D.C. because they want it to be like, you know, Scandal or House of Cards or some other explicit power play. The House of Cards style people are going to relish the opportunity to, you know, make someone do what you want them to do without telling them. And I like, I don't know, other than just saying all politicians are sociopaths, which is not something I don't believe, um, although I'm not sure that I do affirmatively believe it. But other than that, I don't, how do you fix that kind of like weird power dynamic? I don't know if, like, I, do, I don't know. Sorry, it's right, all fix. of our questions. Um, I mean, I, I think. From from conversations with people who study sexual harassment and workplace harassment, and um, I mean, I think there are ways to kind of implement structures to make it easier for people to come forward. Even like even if there are more avenues for anonymous reporting, so that there can be patterns that develop. Um, so right now, for example, uh, Jackie Spear, um, a representative from California in the House, has a legislation, the, the Me Too bill, um, which would extend employee protections to interns and pages. Um, it would uh, it would require a disclosure if there's a settlement that is made in an office. It would require an anonymous climate survey. So, I mean, there are these kinds of things that could make the environment more, uh, a little bit more open for victims to feel comfortable to come forward. But at the end of the day, I mean, it, this is this is the structure of these offices and the, and the people at play. It's a, it's just a very close-knit community of very powerful people and very low-level employees. And it's not just even a patriarchy thing, right? Like Marcy Kaptur, who's a representative from Ohio, was talking earlier this week about how people basically invited, it on, invited misconduct on themselves by, like, showing a lot of cleavage, which, if you've ever been on the Hill, it is the most conservatively dressed place in America, possibly— including church on Sundays. Like, I don't know where she was seeing this cleavage. Well, now we're allowed to show our shoulders in the speaker's, <laughs> speaker's 
speaker's lobby. So oh, maybe that's what friend. she's. Maybe that's what she's. No, but I'm, like, but I'm I mean, sorry, is I that is up. in general? Is it your experience that even women who are members of Congress are t- tend to like protect their colleagues against under you know any kind of? I I don't have enough reporting to to comment on that. I mean, I think I think these people all work together every day. They know each other very well, and um and they are inclined to support each other. And I think that is that is something we even saw with the Franken case, which um I, I wrote a piece on commenting on being on the on the Senate floor watching his resignation speech and. And the reaction afterwards was there was a line of Democratic senators, some of which had, most of which actually had called for him to resign the day before and had made a a big kind of political statement out of it, which were lining up and giving him a hug. And it was this like handshake and pat on the back and this feeling of you did the right thing and like, good job, buddy. And you're, you took one for the team. And I mean, it was... uh, there's definitely this inclination of it's, it's it's hard to believe when someone that is your colleague does this kind of thing. One and, of the most um, surreal things I ever saw was the the Ted Stevens's goodbye in Congress, uh, which I mean it wasn't sexual harassment, but like this guy was he was a terrible senator for starters, <laughs> and like nobody. I don't want to say nobody liked him. Obviously, a lot of people liked him, but he wasn't like any ideological group's favorite guy. He was a crook, which is why he ended up losing his election. But he'd just like been a senator for a long time. And everybody, like Democrats too, Republicans, everyone got like really sad when he left. And and the Franken thing just reminded me of that. It was like... Yeah, it was, I mean, it was, it was very surreal to watch. It was... Um, it all felt a lot more political and partisan than the calls for his resignation had the day before. Uh, and I think those are all, these are all factors at play. I mean, they are, they are uh, uh, wired to be on this team and to win together and to, to have each other's backs um, against all attacks. And they have a lot of power to protect themselves. Yeah, I think it's easy to forget in the kind of... Um you know, filibuster Mitch McConnell era, but even now there's still a lot of fellow feeling among members of the United States Senate across parties. And you see that in the kind of, you know, the like responses to members who have to resign. You see it a little bit in the willingness of existing Senate Republicans to like throw Roy Moore out with the trash because they care a little bit about their their fellow senators in the institution. And it's, you know, it's definitely not what it used to be. But there still is a lot of sense that they are protecting a very important institution. Uh, And that is not always a great thing. I mean, for one thing, that is what leads so many of them to, like, voice these process concerns about not being included, about, you know, for for things that aren't necessarily legitimate process concerns because they have an overinflated sense of their importance and of the importance of, like, Senate procedure. Um, But I think it also, in the same way that, you know, any group that feels under attack by the outside world is going to defend its own members, it's probably a blind spot that, say, the House of Representatives, which doesn't have that kind of sense of commonality among all, you know, 435 members, doesn't appear to have. So I wonder if we are going to see kind of a differential outcome here. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the House... Is, is definitely a more reactive body. And it, um, it, we have seen they are quicker to kind of say goodbye. <laughs> but I, I also think that you see, not just on the Hill, but in the more broader cultural space, that in 
what we've, I guess, decided to call post-Harvey Weinstein, hashtag Me Too era. I personally like the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening. No, but I actually, I, I that's a good turn of phrase because I think it emphasizes the extent to which there are two different things happening in parallel. One is a kind of a hunt for people like Harvey Weinstein, who I think you would say are like, multiple standard deviations worth of outlier misconduct and is to essentially say that there is a problem of sort of silencing of the victims of the most egregious forms of misconduct and that we need some information to come to light. It is very conducive to big-time investigative journalism projects, that kind of thing. A second thing that is also happening is more like a great awakening and is to say that, no, the typical experience needs to shift, right? That like the kinds of workplace experiences that most women have with someone or other or multiple people over the course of their careers is not correct. And there needs to be a large-scale, like, adjustment of how things work. Not, because we're obviously, we're not going to have 25 million different newspaper articles about, like, this one guy did this, you know, like, that That doesn't make sense, right? What we can have is different standards of behavior. I think of this as kind of the collapse of the open secret, right? You know, so many of these cases that have come out, there's been a group of people saying, I'm glad this is finally public. It's not like we didn't already know. And that seems like it's impressive to me that that equilibrium lasted for so long, right? That like it's been clear to everyone that certain certain kinds of behavior are inappropriate. And yet there have been large numbers of people in some degree of power, even not like massive artistic genius, oh, we need to let them do whatever they want, but just a little bit of power to just say, well, the importance that they have outweighs the extent to which whatever they did was wrong, even though we know it was wrong. And that that distance, the willingness to tolerate that seems to be collapsing. And I'm really hoping that that's the durable change that comes out of this, that people, if they become aware that someone in power has done something wrong, don't then do the calculus of like, well, how much do I value them? That kind of thing that they are willing to say publicly that it's wrong. But it's going to be a big problem for Washington because Washington loves open secrets. Washington, like People here tend to love knowing something that other people don't know that isn't publicly known yet. So much journalistic energy goes to being the first person to break a story that's going to become public anyway. And it's unfortunate because, as I said on this podcast two weeks ago, I think that a lot of institutions here are going to need to take the lead in a cultural shift by actually demonstrating that they believe in their values. But I'm not sure that characterologically, the kind of people in those institutions are going to be interested in broadcasting everything they know rather than using it to, you know, show that at a cocktail party that they're more in in the loop than you. Yeah, there are a lot of rumors floating around Congress. <laughs> yes. Um, and on that mysterious note... Well, no, I mean, yeah, look, we, we we will have to see what happens. I mean, this has been, I think, a fast-moving situation uh, where, you know, standards and, and lines have shifted. And, you know, I, I, I do think at the end of the day, the Franken situation and the Roy Moore situation revealed a there was a lot of cynicism in a lot of people's behavior on all sides of that, but ultimately it landed in a 
better equilibrium than where we were before. And sometimes in politics, cynicism and low partisan motives can in fact force people to raise the bar and, and improve situations. And if it is true that there are like dozens more misconduct allegations to come, it will be interesting to see where that shakes out. I mean, does it somehow overwhelm the system? Right, right. Or does it lead to, does it become like a huge political weapon that then it's so powerful that that it, it has to be wielded, but then having been wielded that way really causes more rigorous behavior in the future, right? Because these things these things can happen, right? Like the stakes in partisan politics are high enough that even people in institutions that don't want to change can sometimes force themselves to in order to, you know, take advantage of a situation. I mean, we are only 11 years out from uh, the Republicans losing the House in part because you know, the month before the election, James Foley was revealed to have engaged in sexually explicit IMs with pages. You know, it's not like those things can't be a factor in elections. And, you know, as we've just seen in Alabama, it's really hard to argue that without the Washington Post story coming out of, about Roy Moore, that he still would have lost. Um, but, you know, the, the question is always going to be, do you trust the electorate to be setting the standards for moral behavior? Or do you decide that you're going to get out ahead of the electorate and assume that, you know, we don't know what norms around this are going to be in November 2018. I think it's actually going to be a really hard decision for Congress. Do they get out ahead of the what appears to be a norm changing toward less tolerance in hopes that you know, the public is willing to meet them there next year, or rather in fear that if they don't, the public will kick people out for them? Or do they say, well, th things pass. This is a very, you know, there's a lot of news going on right now. Not everyone knows about every allegation against every member. Let's sit pat and hope that the waters have receded. And while we wait, you should recommend uh, this podcast to all of your friends, your family, uh, coworkers, and, and others. It's a nice, uh, you know, a completely appropriate workplace interaction. Uh, check out uh, the Weeds Facebook group, uh, the Weeds uh, newsletter, many forms of weeds that are that are out there. Um, and thanks to Tara for joining us today. Thanks to Peter Leonard and Sonia Herrero for uh, producing the show today. And we will see you next week. <laughs>